Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to Season 3. On this week's episode. This week on Plenary Session, I'm joined by Matthew Smith. He's a professor of philosophy at Northeastern University, and he's here to talk about COVID-19 from a philosopher's point of view. You won't want to miss this discussion. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad MDMPH. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. I'm back in plenary session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Matthew Smith. Dr. Smith is Associate Professor of Philosophy at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. And it's a pleasure to speak with him about many things, but the role of experts, I think, with the diverse backgrounds in thinking about SARS-CoV-2. Dr. Smith, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me on. You're one of the Honor. few the few philosophers who have graced our, our presence, graced our stage uh, in plenary <laughs> session. Um, I follow I follow you with interest on Twitter, and I, I think you have um, had a number of interesting thoughts on a variety of issues. I wonder where we shall start. Um, I think um, one of the things that I think you've pushed on a little bit is the importance of having people with diverse backgrounds, including philosophy, participate in the dialogue on SARS-CoV-2. What can a philosopher add? Shouldn't you be thinking about the nature of knowledge and things like that? Um, you know, um, what can you add for SARS-CoV-2? I think that's a great question. Um, I don't think, let me start what I cannot add. Um, I, I, I've never done a plaque assay. I don't know how to, you know, do a PCR analysis. I don't know how to intubate. intubate. I, I, I wouldn't have the slightest idea what the appropriate response should be to someone who was hypoxic. So I, I, I certainly can't offer any kind of inform, you know, advice on that. On the other hand, what I spend my life doing is thinking about liberal authority, thinking about the role of the state, thinking about inequality, and in particular, thinking about what human beings can do, about the nature of human agency. Hmm. And one of the nice things about philosophy is that it's the kind of discipline that invites people to uh, push um, beyond the obvious, to push us to ask questions, to try to, um, in some ways, be a little bit of a little bit perverse in our thinking, but in a rigorous kind of way. And um, that's all well and good when we're talking with one another and people say, "Oh, gee, all you're doing is just, you know, um, anything that I have to say is only useful for what another philosopher might uh, have to say." But I actually think that in moments when uh, the entire world has turned in some ways upside down and we're all struggling to try to make sense of really complicated things and we've kind of like lost our grip and we're the slipstream of just, I mean, chaos and to a certain degree terror. There's a, there's a moment when the philosophical practice of um, fighting against distraction and thinking creatively and across a variety of different kinds of disciplines is actually quite rewarding and can actually allow us to see what things um, that others 
might have to grope or struggle to see for us it's sort of like oh sure yeah we've we've thought that through thought that through quite a bit so i'll give you an example this is not what i have to offer but i will give you an example that i think other philosophers have to answer which is um sort of directly in response to your question question which is the nature of expertise itself mm, yeah um which i think is a really interesting question and i think that it's a really difficult question um you know i think that um and I'm going to go at this from two different ways. Yeah. Um, one way is uh, might be a sort of near and dear to your heart a little bit okay. from what I've seen, what uh -huh. you've written. Um, but I'm going to start with the one that's less near and dear, okay. which would be the role of experts in um, having the or the connection between having expertise and the status, the moral status, to tell people how to lead their lives. Yes. And I think that one of the things, one of the habits that we fell into when things went mad this year, earlier this year is all of a sudden people with certain kinds of um, credentials claimed a certain kind of expert status and in virtue of that claimed a certain kind of practical authority. Yes. So look, do what I do, what I do, do what I tell you to do. do. What I tell I'm you to do. Yeah. Don't listen to me. I mean, you're an idiot. Yeah. Worse, you're a bad person and I blame you because I'm the one who knows and therefore you should follow me. Yeah. So a lot of philosophers have thought a lot about that kind of, you know, view of the world. And we're not, this isn't a show to talk about the relationship between political authority and epistemic status, but it's still, I think that's a really interesting set of questions that, you know, we have a lot to say hundreds of years and uh, of work written on that. And there's, there was a flowering of interest in that in philosophy over the past 20 years. I see. And the people who do that, I mean, would it be fair to say they, that in the pandemic, throughout the pandemic, it's been, I would say mostly um, college educated doctorate level people um, who mostly live in houses with backyards, who mostly work on Zoom. So their employment has been rock solid, who mostly eat through Uber Eats, <laughs> who mostly, um, I mean, they really, uh, um, and, 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 and they're able to do it. I mean, uh, I don't have a yard, uh, uh, you know, I, I have nowhere to go other than the, the street. Uh, no, I mean, but you know, you get my point. I mean, I'm, but I'm much better off than unfortunately a lot of people, um, because I am, have had stable employment, thank God. Um, but I mean, well, it's, a, it's a certain, certain point of privilege to, to tell other people you're nodding. What are your thoughts? Yeah. No, I think you're so right. I mean, yeah. like. You, exactly what you're saying. I mean, the thing is, is that we actually, I think that there's a philosophical practice in asking ourselves whether or not we are exercising a certain amount of our own privilege in claiming epistemic authority. Does that make sense? Yes. And, 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 and then the other thing related to that, maybe the other coin is, is how much volition do people really have? I think it's easy to believe that the interventions we've done and the interventions we haven't done are responsible for all of the variation in outcomes we've seen, all of the case differences, all of the death differences, hospitalization. And there's a narrative that all of that is due to what you did. Your leader was a moron, that's why it's bad, or you didn't stay home, or you went out. I think we will learn over the next 20 years that a lot of this variation is has nothing to do with what we did or didn't do. Um, that there may be some innate immunity in certain Asian countries that has protected them from SARS-CoV-2, um, prior uh, SARS infections, um, potentially uh, other coronavirus strains. Um, there may be something else that we don't see that's beyond the actions of mankind and humankind. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't know that that will be the case or won't be the case. I just say that, I mean, I have some humility to say that I don't know. Um, and and if, if, if that is the case, if it is the case, though, however, that more of the variation is explained by these kinds of biological factors that we just don't fully appreciate right now, 
Um, it will make us look, I think, morally, um, I would say, problematic that we, I mean, it is this human tendency to like blame people um, to some degree, you know, the recent rise in cases, it's really, there's not really been clear studies to show where that's happening. I mean, it's easy to blame dinner parties. It's easy to blame playgrounds, easy to blame whatever you want, but I've not actually seen any proof where no one has really traced that, which is a huge failure of science. Um, you're nodding. Yeah. I mean, how do you think no, about, no, I, about I, that? I, yeah. I think you're right. And actually I was going to say that there's this, that's the second. So there's two, yeah, there were yeah, two yeah, yeah. Uh, branches. And I think that the second one is actually squarely in what you're talking about, which is that I think a lot of philosophers, epistemologists, I'm not an epistemologist, um, but I work with some, uh, a lot of philosophers who are epistemologists think a lot about the basis for um, updating our beliefs. You know, so so this would be people who study Bayesian, Bayesianism and stuff like that. And I think that, um, you know, um, there's almost a, 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 we should counsel a certain amount of epistemic humility under these conditions, because this is so new and so different, and it's so difficult for us to make. Um, you know, look, look, I'm I I, I don't have the position. I'm I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an immunologist, I'm not I'm not a doctor of any sort of that kind of sort. So I, I certainly don't have feel confident in making any um, uh, drawing any conclusions on the limited access to the data that I have. But I feel like epistemologists are going to remind us over and over and over again that, for example. Um, you know, we need to think really carefully about the construction of the studies that are being, people are drawing conclusions on, on, on the basis of which people are drawing yes. conclusions. Um, I wonder about I this question, that, I mean, just to ask you, um, does anyone really have expertise? I mean, that's the question that I always come back to. Um, because, because um, yes, we have expertise on respiratory viruses. We have, a, uh, at least we thought we did. And, and we're learning a lot more about, you know, potential, mm. the particle size of, of, of water vapor on which the virus can hang. So aerosol versus droplets, and you can debate that forever. Um, we know we're learning some things. We already knew a lot of stuff. We know, you know, at least we're more advanced than the people in the middle ages. We know what the infectious agent is. It is a virus and, and you can detect it and we have tests for that and we can, you know, we know how it spreads. Um, but one of the things that I don't think anyone is an expert in, although many feign expertise in, is we really don't know what happens when you, um, in an effort to control an infection, uh, stop society as we have stopped society, um, which is across all continents, all people, all civilizations, um, to put the brakes on lots of commerce, daily meeting activities, religious services, restaurants, all these things. I mean, I, I'm not saying that's unnecessary and necessary. I mean, I was a supporter initially, of course, to lockdown because um, I was scared shitless like a lot of people, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But I mean, but I do think that, um, you know, I at least, uh, and I mean, I think some people are at least are able to say that like, you know, I don't know the full implications of what we're doing um, because no one can possibly know some of the, the things we're doing. You're nodding. Um, I mean, and the epidemiologists who I think are, I mean, they're super savvy. I mean, obviously, actually, I'm a professor in the Department of Epidemiology, and I have a public health degree with a focus in, and I spend a lot of time focusing, I'll put it that way, I spend a lot of time focusing in epidemiology. Um, I mean, I think that we're good at some types of things, but modeling this calculus of what happens to a world when you 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 stop the 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 rotation of the planet I don't think we are good at that. I mean, I don't think we're trained in that. I don't think any field, to my knowledge, is trained yeah. in thinking through all those implications. 
Maybe your field is closer to that than my field. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that that um, I think you raise a really important point about all the different variables that come into play as soon as we make adjustments to the um, way in which society functions. And at that point, there's this kind of I have to say, I think that there's at that point, what ends up happening is we fetishize models that uh, that remove all these different variables so that we actually can get some kind of like, you know, some kind of determinate answer. But the thing is, I'm not sure what that's an answer to. Right. I'm not sure if it's an answer to a, um, a question that is relevant to or that is or how the question that it gives us an answer to is related to the, the actual conditions that we're operating under. So yeah, and I'm not sure whether or not philosophers. I mean, I don't I certainly don't think philosophers are actually in any better condition than an epidemiologist in making sense of that. I do think though that you know, it's funny because it's see the thing that people want to say. Well, look, I, you know, we have to be able to you know we have to be able to measure this. We have to be able to you know properly do science to answer these questions. But the thing is, is as you're pointing out, some of these questions are so broad and so difficult that uh, the the move to model removes so much. That, as I just said, it seems to depart uh, so dramatically from the actual conditions that the people who, and here I guess I am plumping for philosophers a little bit, um, the people who actually will have something to say that might be illuminating, that at least might be meaning making in a relevant kind of way, are the people who are a little bit more comfortable with these kinds of generalities who are a little bit more comfortable with actually saying, look, I'm not entirely sure, mm -hmm. but you know, let me try to paint a picture for you. And it turns out actually that these kinds of stories that help us understand the world aren't inert, right? They don't, they don't do nothing yes. and they don't actually, and they don't, and I'm not sure they're measurable either, right? If you tell me that uh, a narrative that uh, structures people's understanding about their place in the world and their relationship to one another is not subject to scientific study, that's not evidence to me that that narrative isn't important and that picture of society is driven by a certain narrative isn't important. It tells me that science isn't caught up to the real world yet. And that's not a, I'm not trying to diss science. I just think that we should be, we should recognize our limits. Yes. I want to read something that you said that struck a chord with me. Um, this is not that long ago. I, um, when did pandemic control and medical care for COVID become entangled in a way that made physicians' voices so prominent on public health questions? You go on. And when it comes to controlling SARS-CoV-2, since almost all infections and probably around 80% of illnesses occur outside the hospital, I'm not sure what your average ER doc has to offer trumps what a smart urban planner has to offer. And I guess I find that really a powerful statement um, because when you turn on the evening news, it's physician, 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 physician. Um, there's also within the physician class, um, there's a caste system of who has more authority. And I think people would put somebody who's an infectious disease doctor who works in the ICU there at number one. Maybe ICU doctor and ER doctor, two and three. Primary care physician manages outpatient COVID, maybe uh, jockeying in at four. Uh, I'm an oncologist who's had patients, uh, some of whom have suffered severely. I don't want to get into details, but of SARS-CoV-2. Um, so where am I? I'm lower, of course, because I'm not an infectious disease specialist. So there's this pecking order. Um, oh. and, I, and I think one of the things that, I mean, that I think concerns me is... Of course, the ICU doctor and the ER doctor may be able to tell us about the hospitalization of a patient with this virus at a level of depth that we do not fully appreciate the full range of illness. I'm sure they're able to better articulate that. 
But when it comes to whether or not we should close parks and playgrounds, the media had, that's a broad, that's a very different question that goes to the heart of your thing, what would an urban planner say? Um, I, I think we, we do ourselves a disservice when we think about the, when we prominent, when we put the voices of those experts ahead of others, we focus on the numerator, not the denominator. We focus on certain types of downstream events, death from COVID, but not other types of downstream events, which is, I mean, what happens to a society where you take people, un- make them unemployed, make them live at home with their children with no employment and no money, and many of which have no yard, no space to go, and then you take away the playground. What do you mm-hmm. do to that person? I mean, um, and 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 much has been written about whether or not suicides are going up or not, and you know I think there's some open question there. But it doesn't have to be, you know, just if they're not killing themselves, okay, then it's okay. No, I mean there's anguish that can happen to a yeah. human being. Um, so yeah, any thoughts on this question of? You know, we we are prioritizing the voices of these doctors, which is good, but we're asking them to comment beyond where their voice is, is where their expertise comes from. I mean, this is, I believe this on my heart and soul. I mm. think that there's a whole lot going on here that you've identified. And I think that one of the crucial questions that we have to ask ourselves, and this is actually when you asked earlier what philosophers have to add, you know. I feel that I, as a philosopher um, who thinks about human agency and the politics of human agency, you know, what, what, be, what jumped out to me very early on is that if you, as you've identified, or as you put it, you know, if we shut down society, if we shut everything down, which I too entirely supported at the beginning, we had to do that. We had to get things under control. And, you know, I, I didn't feel like I would, I was, I welcomed these, these, um, these restrictions. The problem is that when that gave us space, the only tool, the only uh, tool we thought we had left, were restrictions and whatever someone in a hospital could <clears throat> offer us. Yeah. But there's a massive space between what a doctor in an ICU can do and what the state can do by restricting our lives. There's a huge space. Yes, that's and a good in point. that yes. space yes. falls building infrastructure, building human capacity, so that collectively we can take some control over addressing the threat that the pandemic poses to us. So this, and, and this manifests itself in at least two ways. There's more, but at least two. The first is that I think that you know, with, when you're a doctor in a hospital, and I, I think you know you're confronted by illness, and and doctors were confronted by COVID day in and day out. And so the reality of it, the material reality, the yes, suffering, it's omnipresent. Pain, it's omnipresent. It's right there. Mm-hmm. But for the rest of us, it's not right there, right? We hear about it on the news. We read about it. And for some of us got sick, some of us lost loved ones. Yeah. But even so, yeah. the, the, the sort of the, the distributed massive nature of the pandemic wasn't right before our eyes. Um, so what ends up happening is that I think that it becomes very difficult for people to see this as this massive distributed crisis that it is. And as a result, um, when the interventions are just restriction, there's a question of why, why? And of course, to an ICU doctor, I can tell you why I see people dying all the time. Yes. Right. That's but just, like, yeah, right, but, right. But, but, but that doesn't explain why it's restriction and not infrastructure building. 
that's well, a different. Well, that's that's a political question, right? Of course. Right, and yeah. so and so my view is that with every restriction should come in an expand an expansion of agency, mm, right? Yes, yes. And so instead of that's saying good. what we need to do is restrict, what we need to do is we need to build us, make it so that we collectively have the ability to do something about this, right? And so I mean, just very very simple things like, for me at least, one of the things that just drives me crazy is how difficult it is here in the state of Massachusetts to get tested. Uh, fortunately, my employer provides testing, and that's great, but. That also came with, I mean, my employer spent $15 million. Yes. Northeastern University spent $15 million building testing infrastructure that I can see. I walk on campus, it's a giant place where you get tested. I mean, it's huge, right? You cannot miss it. And they built an offsite testing process, a PCR processing yes. facility. And I just want to add a couple things about testing because I mean, I agree mm -hmm. with you. It's, it, but like, it's not just enough to have testing, it has to have a few things. One, you have to, the person getting tested often feels sick. So if you're going to make someone wait for 14 hours in a car in a line or wait in the <laughs> lobby, the fuck are you doing? There, exactly. uh, who wants to be sick in the lobby? I'm getting sicker. <laughs> you know, there are a couple times in my life I've had to go to the emergency room and they make you wait so long. I'm like, I'm going to die in this plastic chair. I'd be better off in my own bed with, you know, some. So, I mean, that's part of it. That's one. So it has to be quick. Two, yep. um, they ha you have to keep other people safe and uh, other people waiting in queue should be kept safe from each other. I mean, that's part of it. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to get the result back fast because if the yep. result doesn't come back fast, what the hell am I going to do differently? Oh, well, you know, you know, <laughs> it doesn't change my behavior. So the result has to come back fast. And I think um, it's a, just a total, I mean, there has been expansion in testing, but those oh, yeah. metrics, convenience, comfort, um, and, and speed, that's a total failure even to this day. Totally. I totally agree with you. And so, so I mean, but I'm just, so the testing yes. infrastructure, so, so, so let me, so let's imagine this alternative. Okay. And, um, imagine that in, um, so it's, it's convenient in, in Massachusetts. I don't know where you did, if you went to school or did a residency or an internship up here in, in Boston. Not in the, I'm the only one who's never spent time in Boston. <laughs> no, no. I, uh, I was in oh, North awesome. University of Chicago, Northwestern, and then the DC. Uh, so I've never been, oh, I've never, awesome. I mean, I've been Chicago, to Boston. I love Chicago. That's a great city. Best um, city in the world seven months a year, how you like to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm game for that. Okay. So, um, uh, um, I just, I'm going to put it in terms of Massachusetts terms, but you can, you can translate this into any kind of urban environment. Imagine if sort of in every major, um, what, what we call square. So every major sort of commercial area in um, the Boston area, there was a, a big white tent, right? And the tent had, say, the Red Cross symbol on it or something like that, and had these pennants saying COVID testing here. And you couldn't miss it. You want to go to work, you're going to walk past the COVID testing tent or so on and so forth. First of all, I think that that's just a material impact on our environments in a way that just signals to everyone there is an emergency, all right? right. We've changed the physical environment. Right. And what if in, in order to create safe testing, uh, a safe testing regimen, we, we blocked off streets and so on and so forth? Exactly. So yeah. now, in fact, the, the traffic patterns are different. Why? Because of COVID. And furthermore, let's imagine that you see your neighbors going in and test, getting tested and, and people come out. Maybe there's, there's a public health um, uh, um, envoys come out and say, hey, would you come down and get tested? Or, or they're saying, hey, come on and get tested. And so what that builds is a kind of social solidarity. It builds this broad public spectacle of, taking, of collectively taking responsibility for controlling this pandemic. And I think that that's the kind of intervention that why would, why would an ICU doc think of that, right? Why would an ICU doc think of that? And furthermore, if you're a public health, you know, uh, professional, you might kind of think of that, might not think of that. But you know who does think about stuff like that? Urban planners, people, political philosophers, stuff like that. I mean, this is it's just like second nature to imagine those kinds of interventions, right? Some of the best interventions early on around this were coming from people who I talked to who are transit planners who are thinking about like, why don't we just shut down these streets and create space for people to con congregate outside? 
And then what will that what will that do? Well, that will create a sense that this is an emergency and that we have to change our environment. We have to change our lives in order to adjust to this. I think that this is the, exactly the kind of creative thinking that when you escape the bounds that expertise puts on collective discourse about this kinds of these kinds of problems, you get this, you know, this bubbling up of, of great ideas of ways to think differently about how to address this. Now, of course, I'm going to turn to the infectious disease doctor. I'm going to turn to the epidemiologist. I'm going to turn to the public health expert and say, how do we make this work right. within right. the bounds right. of right. your discipline? I think that's well but put. It, I mean, it, it makes me um, think about how, um, well, I guess it makes me think about a couple of things. But one thing it makes me think about is um, all of the things we did in the pandemic were restrict things, which have further exacerbated inequalities. Um, and and some of the people who have supported these severe restrictions, you know, they said, you know, they say like, well, we also supported stimulus checks. It's not my problem that they're not getting mailed out. And and then I want to say like, um, but given that we live in a political climate where they're not getting mailed out, perhaps you need to recalibrate your restrictions. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and what I mean by that is like the same way a doctor who, you know, there's some interventions that every once in a while you have a patient who, for whatever reason, you cannot access the intervention because they don't have the right type of insurance. It still happens even in this day of ACA and things like that. There's wow. some things you can't get them, um, particularly if they are coming from a different country and their immigration status is, is, is um, you know, if, if they right. haven't, yeah, right not, that, that, that's the challenge. Um, and what do you do as a doctor? Well, you don't do nothing. Obviously, you do your best to do, and sometimes you can't do that thing. Like you can, I mean, you literally can hope and you can call everyone you know, and there's some places you can try to do it, but you can't do that thing. You do the best you can with what you're given and, right. and you make compromises and hard choices. Um, and that is something that I see, like, I, I feel like the cop out for why, you know, poor people are really suffering, feeling the squeeze. And the cop out is, well, you know, we supported stimulus checks. It's not my fault. The Congress people don't do it. I'm like, well, you need to sort of either, you know, change that or build that into, take that into account in your response. Um, any thoughts? 100%. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you're really onto something and, and at the risk of, of upsetting some doctors who made this kind of argument, um, what I saw was a lot of doctors atomizing the responsibility for response to this pandemic in a way that said, you individuals, you all need to, you have the power, you all are responsible for, for social distancing, for not traveling, for not seeing loved ones. It's you who have to do this. And I think that while it's true that we all do have an individual responsibility to manage this, exactly what you said, there are people who still have to go into work, right? Yeah. There are people who, as you pointed out, live in small apartments with their kids who can't go to school right now and so on and so forth. And so when you atomize responsibility like that, and when you make that the primary message, to me, what that said, there's a kind of heartlessness to it. Yes, it's heartless. Right? I mean, there's people going, to, people going to food bank right now, and you're saying, don't, don't mix with others. Like, I got to stand in line to get food, thank you the very much. The food lines right in this neighborhood that I'm, I'm in right now, they stretch for block after block after block. I, and, and multiple sites, and just all wrapping around buildings with carts. Um, food lines, people going hungry. Um, mm -hmm. And... It, you know, it, there's, there's selfishness and there's self-centeredness where you view the world only through your own experience. And there's so much self-centeredness here. It sickens yes. me. Um, oh, yes, one, nice. one thing I wanted to say, and then I'll, I'll go yeah. back. I'm sorry I'm interrupting you. Um, <laughs> no, no, I guess I was thinking about, um, like, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in what you were saying about how the saliency of what you see 
leads you to calibrate your emotional, your thermostat. So the ED doctor seeing COVID cases pile up, their thermostat is set at full blown, you know, Mm -hmm. shut the shit down. We got a fucking disaster here. The person out in the community, um, maybe somebody has, has, many people have had obviously 300,000 dead Americans. Many people have a loved one die. Many people have a couple loved ones. Some people have had one loved one sick or a secondary loved one. Um, But some people have had less. And and so it's a range. And so people have different uh, thermostats that are set. And I guess I want to say um, the experts on one end, the doctors, are easy to fault the people on the other end of the thermostat saying, you just don't know what's going on. Your head is in the sand. You're not taking this seriously enough. Um, but the similar error, they occur in both errors. There, there are two types of errors oh, yeah. that can be made. Sometimes you can see so much of it, you forget the denominator. I'm not saying that that's happening here, but I'll give one example. I once worked in a clinic where we took care of uh, a pheochromocytoma. It's a very rare adrenal cancer. Its incidence is, I believe, 0.7 per million. And one of the things that happens is people have high blood pressure and flushing and, you know, these kind of palpitations, these episodes. And then later, you know, people think it's a panic attack. People think it's on, you know, stress or something like that. And then finally somebody, you know, it's just regular high blood pressure. And somebody finally diagnoses this like rare, ultra rare, you know, less than one in a million tumor. And in this clinic... Somebody was like, oh, every time we had a referral, they were like, oh, look at this stupid primary care doctor. They never thought to work this up, did they? And I was like, to be fair, you know, you're in a FIO clinic. The only thing you see here is the FIO. So it's easy to think, <laughs> why didn't they think about FIO? But they're out there in the real world, and the incidence of this is 0.7 per million. So why should they have thought about it? What are you talking about? So, like, maybe your thermometer is a little bit off. And so I guess I want to say... Um, I mean, I think that that both things can happen. And I think to some degree, you know, when the cases started rising just a few weeks ago, people wondered why. And I would say, like, it's not that complicated. Why? I believe it's that um, people were very scared and they did a lot of things to keep the virus at bay from March, April, May, June, particularly in these states like South Dakota and Kansas and these states um, while it was hitting New York City. And they looked on the news and said, God, I'm glad I'm not New York City. Um, And then at some point, you can only be in that heightened mode for so long. And then you're like, I want to see my loved one. I want to have a dinner party. I want to meet someone for a beer. I want to go on a date. Um, and people start doing these kinds of things. Um, and, and, and yeah, then it spreads. Um, but it's really like, I don't know. It's just, it's just people being people. I I don't know what else to think in in a setting where there was no infrastructure for them to do other things. And we didn't make it, you know, thoughts. No, I mean, I I think you're entirely correct. (laughs) I mean, I've been thinking a lot about what's the long, you know, the sort of post-vaccine world. But back to what you're saying, I think you raise a really important point, which is that the physicians and the epidemiologists for whom this um, took over their lives in a very, very real way, uh, starting in February, March, and for physicians and often in a very horrible way. uh, Yeah, I mean, their voices... Uh, we're always directing us towards more restrictions or mostly directing us towards more restrictions, more individual responsibility. And yeah, I think that there is a flip side that a lot of people who are out weren't directly affected. Like, I don't, I don't want to, yeah. don't want to care about yeah. this. Here's, you know, I think. And, and to some degree that led to the little bit of backlash because now we have like a little counterculture movement where it's like, it's not real. You know, they go crazy in the other oh, direction, God. but, but, yeah. but, but to some, I mean, to some degree it's inspired by strong people. I mean, so I, I think sometimes we forget that like one poll incites another poll sometimes. And the best thing you can oh, do yeah. is take some middle of the road. Right. But so, but part of my response to this is I think that there needs to be also an appreciation for power differential. Yes. 
when you have a big shot ER doctor or a big shot other kind of infectious disease doctor or something like that, who's on the news all the time, right? Who people are like, this person is fabulous, this person's amazing, they've devoted their life to medicine, so on and so forth. And basically they can do no wrong. Those people, they have huge platforms, right? And I think that one of the things that, that frustrates me is that they don't recognize their own position of power. Now, I'm not saying they have a ton of power. I'm not saying they're, they're like king of the world, nor am I saying that they are, you know, um, you know, the chief, uh, uh, they're not Fauci. Or yeah, they're not like Fauci. That. Yeah, yeah. But, 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 but they do have a lot of online clout. Yeah. And, and in the media, like yeah. they're on CNN or maybe, or whatever, they're on Maddow. For if you're, it doesn't matter either side. They, the thing is that, like, for me, if, if they recognize their power, and then, as you said earlier on, people are not getting the checks. People are, the state is not stepping up and supporting the unemployed. The state isn't doing this stuff. And so what is their response? Their response is like, look, the state's not doing anything. So I'm not going to actually say that what people should do is, is I'm not going to say, oh, we need more unemployment or we need to redistribute income or something. Like, That's not going to happen. What I'm going to do is I'm going to insist that people take responsibility. My response to that is twofold. The first is what you just said, which is people are people. If you're a twenty-something and you're t- and you haven't gone on a date for six months, you're going on a date. Of, co- of course, right? they're going to do that. Yeah, of course, like, it's going to happen. That's number one. So, so, so the simple fact is the demand that people be individually responsible isn't going to work. So it's just as much of a failed policy as the demand to the, as sort of supposedly the demand to the governor to change their habits is not going to work. But secondly. I reject the claim that political pressure doesn't work. Political pressure does work. It does work. And yeah, it does times, work. Right. And it's often the most responsible thing to do, given the position of power that someone has. But they, so but I, yeah, go on. I mean, I think there have been a couple instances where, the, I mean, I, uh, this has been pointed out on this podcast before, the same person who'll go on national TV and say, look at Sweden, they are fucking up by doing this. They won't say, we're fucking up schools. They won't say, yeah. we're fucking up the students. They don't want to be, I don't want to be a political, I'm not political, I'm not political. You have to say, that if you're going to say it about right. another foreign right. government, yeah. Or, or, I mean, this is, I mean, I feel this very, very strongly here in Massachusetts where the, the governor, Charlie Baker, who is a Republican and everyone thinks he's this brilliant technocrat, Repu- technocrat Republican, almost never comes in for public criticism from big shot doctors. And yeah. believe me, there are a lot of big shot doctors who are connected to Harvard University and Harvard Medical School and Brigham, et cetera. And so what you have is these people who actually have these you know, pretty nice sinecures. And I don't care. Look, if someone isn't a, isn't a professor there, isn't a tenure professor there, if you're a fellow and you're at Harvard Medical School, you're going to be probably going to be fine, especially if you have a large, um, if, you, if you have an impressive you know, publication position, blah, blah, blah. And it's still stuff. a position of power. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's still yeah, a position yeah. of power. And especially if you have a voice. Yes. So in that case, I don't know why those people are going out and saying what you need to do, 20-something who's got a precarious job, so on and so forth. You must go to work, but not have fun. You think that's going to work? No. What that person needs to do, the, the, Harvard, the fancy Harvard person needs to do, is going to say, Charlie Baker, you're failing our state. All of you legislators, you're failing our state. And that's got to be the constant message. There's got to be this roar of dissatisfaction being led by the same people that everyone admires, namely the doctors and so on and so forth who have these platforms, this roar of dissatisfaction about the state response to the pandemic, in which case, hopefully what would happen is that we would then say, and this is coming back to your question of expertise and what philosophers have to answer. And I really do feel like this is a package. It's not like a hermetically sealed, perfectly work, worked out package. I don't think I've all worked out or anything like that. But I think that these are these are this is a package deal. These same people need to go out and say something to the effect of, "Government, you're yeah, failing." I agree us. with you. Yeah. And I've talked to these economists and these political economists and these urban planners, and they've come up with an idea, for example, for Corona bonds. And the state has the authority. I don't know about this, but I have the I have the microphone. 
So I'm going to tell you, they yeah. told me the state has the authority to float these bonds. And these people told me that, the, that we can, we have the capacity to build these spaces here, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think I, it makes me think about two things uh, because I agree with you so much. Um, you know, when I was a medical student many years ago, as students, uh, every once in a while, there would be something that crossed our plate that was problematic. Um, and I was a medical student back before I think young people were so activated. And back then, like for most of us, you know, you just swallowed and went on with your day when you saw something stupid. And a couple of times I would, yeah. um, you know, I would voice my discontent, uh, which means that you probably somebody doesn't is getting irritated by the, that me saying something. Um, but I remember one student uh, who was a colleague of mine who is, um, um, you know, this person pointed out to me that um, you got to keep your head down. And I say, what do you mean? It's like, well, never ruffle any feathers until someday you're at the top in a position of power when you can make real change. And I mm. thought my response to that was, you know, when I observe people who have that view in life, that they don't want to say what they think until they get to the position of power, by the time they get to the position of power, they are no longer themselves. They have nothing yep. they believe in. They've, they've lost it all, yeah. Um, when you talk about the doctors on the media, I feel like, I, I honestly think we would have been better off if like Twitter had been deleted in this pandemic. By that I mean, there is this sort of cyclical thing where um, like a number of people saw that it was the greatest opportunity to build uh, followers and clout and that sort okay. of stuff. Okay. Um, they started talking more and more about um, of these topics and you know, your followers counts just explode when you start, especially when you start taking one stance or the other, you know, not a middle of the road, but like more of a hard line stance, you gain a lot of people. Um, and then the news people are on Twitter and they see those people tweeting, commenting and they call them up and get the comment. And then that goes in the news story that this person then tweets. So the news story gets more, you know, clicks and, and it's this vicious feedback loop where um, they're all patting each other on the back. And the only things I see in terms of like longevity of a cable news five-minute segment career is, um, one, you have to read all the CNN, Atlantic, and MSNBC stories from the day before so you know where the conversation left off. You have to um, steer the ship very, very subtly. You can never take any sort of strong position. Um, and you have to kind of say, toe this sort of just general party line, you know, which is a lot of the things that you're talking about, like telling people what they should be, should be doing. Um, and, and I, I guess to me, I find it really troubling. And, and I actually don't, th I actually don't understand the end game for a lot of people. Like, um, like I like, I'm like, why, why do you want to have 300,000 followers for being like the SARS cove expert? Like, you know, someday it will be in the rear view mirror. Why, why the hell, what are you, you going to do with your 300,000 followers? And like, how does it help you? And I don't even like, I don't even know what your game is, especially if you're, you know, you're just somebody who's been reading the news clippings and regurgitating it. Um, the thing I wanted to ask you was um, the debate, permitting debate. I mean, um, philosophers, and I guess I must admit that I took a lot of philosophy classes and I attended a lot of job talks when I was a student. And I was a student uh, oh, cool. at Michigan State University. And there are some really interesting people there. Uh, Scott Yoder, Fred yeah. Gifford, um, uh, 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 Steve Lindquist, um, uh, uh, Jim, Jim Nelson was there and Heidi Lindemann uh, Nelson was there as well in the years I was there. And Oh, and, and Brody, uh, Howard Brody, who's a medical ethicist. So it was like a really nice department. And we'd have job talks and... and um, it was spirited debate. You know, people were, it wasn't, it was different than what I see now. It wasn't personal. Like people weren't, um, it wasn't about whether or not somebody's smart or dumb or, you know, a good person or a bad person. There was never a moral component to it, but it was really pushing on um, 
things that they thought were true or not. And it was, I mean, lively. People were, you know, they gave colorful little short quips and talks and it was, it was a nice performance. (laughs) And I mean, I really was engaged. Um, um, But I think that something has happened. I don't know what, but the ability for somebody in the SARS-CoV-2 space to listen to, consider, reply, disagree with is very, very narrow. And even though the things we're doing have the widest uncertainty of anything we've ever done in healthcare, our ability to hear another point of view is the most narrow it's ever been in healthcare. I think there's more there's more tolerance for different chemotherapy regimens, which you know are like this, you know, like almost the same. I, I really think there's something I've never experienced anything like it. I wonder if you might, if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I haven't done a, a careful study of this. It sounds like you've thought more about this than I have. I, I will say that um, it seems <clears throat> to me that some of the most um, insightful work on how to manage the pandemic has come from people outside of the traditional medical and public health disciplines. I'm thinking of uh, Zainab Tefeki's work, for example. I think that's been really influential. Um, and uh, she, you know, she's published this stuff in The Atlantic. And uh, regardless of whether or not she's correct, I think it's made a big impact on yes. how people think and debate these things. And part of it is because she works hard to synthesize a variety of different mm-hmm. uh, points of view. And she's highly sensitive to the ways in which these things get realized in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's, you know, it's people like that seem to actually um, uh, play an important role. And I think some journalists are playing important roles like, um, uh, I don't know if you pronounce, do you pronounce his name Young or Young Ed Young. Yeah, um, I think Ed, yeah, I, th- I I I always call him Ed Young, but I think he's done Ed Young. He's done a terrific job. I mean, he's just a, a brilliant. I mean, he's just a very smart person. I think he trained in Cambridge. And a beautiful in writer. Yeah, and a good and a very good writer. Yeah, <laughs> I can read him writing. all day. Um, and I yeah. think somebody who's who's really trying to to talk about sort of the broader philosophy of what we're doing here. Um, no, your 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 points are really excellent. I mean, I have an idea that I'm I'm going to write up, and actually, who knows when this podcast will come out? Maybe I'll have written it by then. But um, here's my idea. I'll pitch it to you, and you tell me what you think. Um, you know, I got myself in a bit of trouble. I say that a lot. I always that's like 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 half my articles start with. Recently, I got myself in a bit of trouble, um, and this goes. <laughs> um, and by articles, I mean blog posts for. A website, so nothing special. But um, <laughs> um, so this one was, I you know, I talked about Thanksgiving and how you know it was like the messaging I saw on Twitter was like abstinence only, and I was like, oh my yeah. god, and and I was just like, it's just not. Um, it's just not going to be helpful because like there was some poll and I think it said like 38% of Americans say they're going to meet with 10 or more family members on Thanksgiving day. And then these doctors, of course, like, I mean, I almost think that the headline was tweeted just to bait doctors to click on it because it was so like inflammatory <laughs> to the doctor. And they said, you know, like absolutely you should not do this. If you want to do this, you're going to have a funeral on Christmas, horrible, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but I feel like it, it was missing what people were really saying, which is like, I mean, is there really a person who doesn't know about SARS-CoV-2? I mean, we've heard nothing but SARS-CoV-2 right. for 10 months. And people are telling you, right. they're, they're saying in a poll where they're probably, you know, hiding their true feelings, that 40, 50, 40% of people are still going to do it anyway, which is really kind of, it's a cry, it's a cry from the human soul, like that we're, su- people are suffering. And I'm going to come back. That's the last thing. People are suffering so bad. They're telling you, like, I don't care, you know, that there's a risk of dying. I agree. Like, it's all we hear, but I need, we just need to do this. I mean, that's how it comes across to me when I see a poll like that. So I was kind of really deeply saddened. Um, and so my point was that we shouldn't have the abstinence only at messaging. We should have messaging on how to like diminish the risk. 
And, yeah. um, and I gave a few ideas, but it was never sufficient enough for some critics. So my new thing is I'm going to write like my proposal for Christmas because it's coming. Um, <laughs> and, and my proposal is it's going to be called Christmas, a Christmas tailgate. And, you know, cause I went to a big 10 university, Michigan state university. And before our football games, we would, every parking lot would be like a truck and right outside there'd be people standing around. Like uh, I think people fried turkeys, people had bark grills and we had a tailgate outside standing apart with masks, uh, except the standing apart and ma masks are the two new things. Um, but that's what we should be talking about. Like people want to mm -hmm. meet on Thanksgiving, get a propane stove out there on the street and stand around it. Um, totally. like we need to give people the place to do it. Um, 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 and, and so that's what I'm going to try to write up, like, like a vision of like what it might look like. Um, and, and just like the ball games, you know, you can drink a few beers. That's cool. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Uh, no, this is this is it. But this is what I'm talking about. Every restriction should come with an expansion. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if we're going to restrict and, and I, I actually I, I for me, there's something that isn't getting enough attention. And it's exactly what you pointed out, which is that and you use this word earlier. There's anguish. Yeah. I think people are the pain that comes from the psychic pain, the, 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 the trauma that comes from losing a year with one's elderly parents when their grandchildren, the, the elderly parents' grandchildren are, aren't knowing them is real. I mean, the sense that, that, I mean, there's a sense of lost time of like, I lost, there's a, there's a year of family of love. There's a year of, of the thick fabric of what it means to be a human being of why we want to live that has been stripped away. And it's been stripped away. Yes. A hundred percent by the fact that there's a pandemic. Yes. Right? And, I, and I, and I don't, yeah, I'm not right. saying you're not saying others. Away. Right. But the thing is, is that, is that when you don't begin with the acknowledgement that there's anguish and trauma there, I really do think people then are going to respond by saying something to the effect of, you don't care. Yeah. Like, what is this? This is just an exercise of your own. And this is when it comes back to epistemic authority. Your status as a doctor yelling at me to live my life a certain way. I mean, do you really hear me? Do you see me? And I think that there's something really important there that's lost. And I, yeah. um, so I think that's, and I think that beginning with that, immediately leads to the intervention that you're recommending, which is if you begin to see that people are desperate. Yes, and that it's desperate and it's anguish. When you see that, then the answer is, okay, I'm not going to tell this person, don't do it. I got to figure out a way that we can yep. mitigate this. The same for the people dying, which I was just get so angry about where like, you know, to tell, I mean, you know, there are people who can't visit their, their father when they die. Um, that's uh that's something worse than death i say i mean to, to you know i don't care if you take a tablecloth off a table if you take a cloth mask and tie it around someone's face if you put a towel over their head you will you can find a way to get someone i don't care if you wheel the guy out to the parking lot to take his last breaths you got to find a way to let people be with their parents when they die um and if not then you know we can give up on this whole thing called you know existence because there are things worse than death and people have long realized that uh, throughout, you know, all, all the great courageous acts in history, um, were often people who recognize that there are things worse than death. But I want to come back to this anguish thing. I think this anguish is, I, I think it's so deep. And I, I, I think that, um, the people who are, they themselves vehemently calling for the restrictions are some of the people suffering the deepest anguish. And that that vehemence of the, of the restriction is the way in which they're expressing their anguish. Um, and, sure. and, and, and I think that like, um, 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 uh, uh, one of the things I've noticed on social media is I believe people's 
temperament is miscalibrated. There, I, I think it, it's, 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 it's the outrage cycles which used to occur, you know, with some periodicity where there's somebody who said something that is bad. And I want to agree, a lot of the times, yeah, that was a bad thing to say. That person mm-hmm. represents some of the sort of popular um, emotions in the world today that I wish were dead, that we were beyond, but that we're still overcoming as a society. And they have espoused some flavor of it to different degrees. And some people, I think they espouse it a little bit and some people are really bad. And, you know, there's all these shades of gray. Um, And in the old days, you know, you'd get such a person and there'd be some pushback. But now the, the, I feel like this, it's almost every day in my feed, something somebody said, an op-ed, a tweet, a writing, a video, a blog, something somebody did or said that is offensive to, to others. And and there's a thousand, ten thousand people who say off with their head or the modern equivalent of, you know, let's find out where they work and they're a horrible person, get them fired. You know, th- this thing is part of it. Um, yeah. uh, this is running rampant. Um, people are angry. They're short tempered. This is all from this anguish. I mean, people are suffering They're They and 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 I think very few people recognize that um, like we as like you can tweet a poll that like 90 percent of Americans have mental health um challenges in this moment and not see yourself in that 90 you know of course you're the other 10 yeah. um and that to me is is also part of why like nobody can listen to other people's opinions it's also part of why i think some of the vehemence of this issue of like stay in your house stay in your fucking house stay in your fucking house and wear your fucking mask. you know it's like it's like jesus christ um and to me like the one that really kind of i thought was like the the the, the pinnacle of this was um or just an example of it, but it was like some doctor who went to a Home Depot in Southern Ohio and there was like somebody without a mask. I don't know if you saw this. I tell this story. And and and, and basically the, um, there's somebody chopping the Home Depot without a mask. But Home, Do- Home Depot has a policy and Ohio has a policy that you got to wear a mask when you're in a store. But this person wasn't wearing a mask. And this person went up to the Home Depot employee and said, look, this guy is chopping your store, no mask. You can do something about that. And this person said like, well, Home Depot corporate says lay off, don't do anything about it. So we can't. And then this person was like furious, like boycott Home Depot. And I was like, you don't see what's going on here. Like it was like on the eve of a presidential election with one of the most polarizing figures in in history um, at a time in a place where concealed carry is probably like through the roof. And <laughs> and and you want some like 17 year old kid who's getting paid $7 an hour to go to somebody who's not wearing a mask, despite the fact they probably have heard that this is something prudent to do. And they're saying they don't want to do it. And you want this 17 year old kid to tell this person not to do it. How do you think that's going to end? And I bet Home Depot corporate for all their failures, and I don't know anything about Home Depot. I'm not an advocate. Um, I probably bought a few plants from there sometime. But um, I think they've actually thought that like, oh, as bad as it is for the publicity of shopper shops at Home Depot without mask, I think it would be worse for Home Depot for the publicity of Home Depot turns into gun-fueled carnage when somebody confronts somebody about a mask. And I just don't know what people want. How do you want the situation to end? Like the cops come, tell him to wear the mask. He doesn't. They're screaming at him. The droplets are going everywhere. They put him in the mat. They take him to the prison. So then he gets the COVID in the prison. The prison. Right. I mean, where, what is the goal of all this? Like at some point, you got to cut your losses. This dude, he's unforgivable. Just walk the other aisle, you know? Give him a clear berth in the Home Depot. Um, so anyway, but I think that's anguish too. I think the reason the doctor's tweeting it is anguish. The retweets are anguish. Um, I don't know. Thoughts? So, you know, I, I think you're right about a lot of this stuff. And I think that, that, uh, I think that, you know, I don't think there are ones, there's not one fell swoop answer, but I do come back to my, an old thought, which is that I think that the, um, there's a, there's an absence of, uh, solidarity around this, 
facing this pandemic. And I think part of the reason why there's an absence of solidarity is that early on, there was what got pushed down was responsibility for addressing this uh, pandemic. And so that it was each of us individually as employees or employers, we had to figure it out, right? I mean, like by figure it out, I don't mean we had to figure out what the mitigation measures would be, but we had to figure out how to execute them. We had to figure out, it was on us individually to figure out how to make this work. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, at least, the what wasn't happening was this an effort to construct a kind of solidarity around the response so that we felt like we were all in this together and that we were going to support each other through this. Which might mean, by the way, when we when I say we're going to support each other through this, it might mean that, well, we might have to break some rules in order to support each other grieving, for example. So yeah, so. exactly. And so and and this is actually again, this is, you know, I, I like the theme of that, that you've been pushing, um, although it might get me in trouble. Um, I think this again comes back to this kind of uh, sanctification of the doctor as the warrior against COVID. Um, no, if 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 this is a mass distributed problem, then it requires a mass distributed yeah. solution. Yeah, and that requires us being willing to work together to look at each other, even in the midst of this presidential election, as somehow sharing in each other's fates. Now, I don't know how you do that universally, but I do know, for example, in blue state Massachusetts or blue state California, there's a way to do that. And the way to do that, at least better than not doing anything, is to try to create the kinds of material interventions in in our lives, to try to create that, that are, for all intents and purposes, spectacles of solidarity. Yes. This is us together. And think about just other spectacles of solidarity, like football games, where we all get together and we sing songs together or whatever, like in, in the UK where I used to live, you know, people, everyone's saying these Yeah, you can't do that because of the virus. But no, yeah, but your point, yeah, what? but that nothing builds camaraderie better than those sorts of things. Right. So, of course, we can't sing together because that'll make just, us all sick. Yeah, 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 but yeah. my point is, is that we can do things together yes, we and we can together. see evidence of us working together. Yeah. And it requires creativity to try to create these interventions, to create these opportunities for us to be sh- to share in the spectacle. But if what you generate is suspicion so that when I, so that the dominant way in which I handle COVID is by looking at the another person as a threat yeah. and fearing myself and my kids around them, yeah. that atomizes society in such a way yeah. that I am not going yeah. to join with, I'm going to see that person when the mask slip, when the mask slips yeah. Yeah. Um, as a threat and yeah. not, for example, as someone who might need a hand. That's an and I think point, that yeah. is actually one of the fundamental failures. And yeah. that's one of the, and, and I that's think that's perhaps the core failure that a great opportunity to unite us was used to divide us. Yeah, but it, see, I'm not sure. So, so I think a lot of political journalists, et cetera, will be like, see, this is the, the effort of the Trumpists and the whatever to divide us. And no, but I actually, I think it's more complicated. Yes, than that. I think it's I more complicated think that than that. It was like a, it's, it's like a bank shot of division. Yes. When we see, when we say these are the COVID warriors, these are the ones who yes, are saving no our way. lives and no one else is doing it. Contrast that with the mass public demonstrations after after George Floyd's killing. There was a sense that we as a community are going to change policing. Now, it did not happen nationally. No. But let me tell you, things are changing. I see. Why are they changing? Not because we said this person and this person and this person are our holy spokespeople. We right. must listen to them. No, it's because people got in the streets yeah. and stayed in the streets together. 
in a, in a collective group. And I, I mean, I don't want to think it's a debate about police reform, but the thing is, is like, you know, I took my family down. So this, these are my politics. I took down my family down every week. I, we, I shouldn't say I, my wife and I together, we took our family down to the local um, uh, Black Lives Matter protest every mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. And there we all were together outside with our masks on, with our signs. Mm -hmm. And the sense of kind of almost relief of joy that we had, it was a politics of joy around transforming society. There's an, an a politics of joy around transforming society in the face of one of the most difficult things that we have to face, which is structural racism. A politics, politics of joy that brought us together, that got my kids playing with other people's kids who are out there protesting across the street from a police station here in, here in Boston. And there was no, there wasn't violence. So people drove around and yelled at us and flipped us off, whatever. But the thing is, is that like one of the lessons that I took away from that is that there's the, that there is a possibility of the production of a kind of collective sensibility to face this pandemic, mm -hmm. but you cannot do it. You cannot do it. If people tell me and everyone else who doesn't have an MD after their name or something else to shut up and to do what we're told, you can't, it just, it won't work. Yeah. It won't work. A bunch of people would be like, screw you. I'm going to take my kid to soccer practice. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, 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 um, I think you're, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, it's been a joy, man. I love listening joy. to your ideas. Oh, well, <laughs> thanks. No, I love listening to your ideas too. Um, can I ask you a question? Okay, sure. Because it's something that, that I thought of, I kept thinking of as you were talking, as you brought up anguish. And I'm just wondering, you're an oncologist, and I assume you see patients. Oh, and yes. I just imagine that to be one of the most difficult, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, being an oncologist has got to be, you deal with pain and anguish, oh, yes. sadness daily. What, what I don't want you to instrumentalize that, but what that's got to bring a different perspective perspective on what we're going through today, or is that wrong? No, I think it does. I mean, uh, it's part of the reason why I think that there are things worse than death, uh, because I am mm. around a lot of death. Um, I guess I would say a couple of things. Um, I guess one, I think as an oncologist, one of the misconceptions is that the only thing we do is take care of people who are nearing the end of life. We do a lot of that, but we also have the pleasure of curing people who were going to die but wouldn't die because of what we did. And we also have the pleasure of treating people who... Um, 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 may to some degree be cured by what we do, but may also have always had indolent biology or perhaps been overly mm. s uh, put in the medical system and had some incidental loma cut out or something like that. But I mean, so we have a range of, if you go to your clinic, it's going to be a range of long-term follow-up, people you've taken care of for decades, not decades, but years, um, um, and, and people who you're taking care of for months and weeks. And I guess I, I don't know. Um, I, I always thought when I, like when I started, I'm in my like sixth year of practice by myself and my ninth year in the field of oncology. Um, when I started, um, I always worried that like it would, it would rob you of your humanity and you would become inured and indifferent to the death and suffering of others. Um, and then when I was a trainee, I once walked in on a professor of mine who was a very senior guy, probably taking care of 10, 20, 30,000 people in his career. I mean, a lot of people. Um, and he, um, he was crying at his desk, like weeping. And I said, I'm so sorry. I'll be back in a few minutes. I didn't mean to interrupt anything. And he said, no, um, just give me a minute. Um, he said, a patient I've been taking care of for the last uh, three years uh, just died. I just got the phone call. And um, he was crying. And, and I thought to myself, 
It's very powerful to see somebody who must have presided over lots of people who passed away, but it still hurts him like it would hurt any of us to lose a friend, um, a loved one, somebody who's in our lives. Um, and so I guess, um, you know, the answer to your question is, I guess the, the thing that always sustains me about oncology is not that um, I think anything about this situation. It's, I mean, one thing, it is just a fact of life. We're all going to die. Um, but that I view my role as, um, and I judge my own success as whether or not I was able to make someone's last period of time better than it otherwise would be. And that could be by extending their life, reducing their symptoms, or providing them spiritual comfort, um, existential comfort. Um, and, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that that is a great source of, of satisfaction. Um, it's a privilege to, to be with somebody when they're nearing death. It's a privilege to have people tell you things, uh, that, you know, that they would never tell, uh, you know, hardly a soul on earth that they'll confide in you. Um, and it's a privilege to have somebody, uh, and you know, I mean, being a doctor is probably, I, I'm biased. I think it's a wonderful job because people look at you with a lot of admiration and trust. And so, um, that's still, I think, I think to me what makes it important. And then I guess the other thing I think is like, there are some fields in medicine that people advertise as places where, um, that's a good field to go into. It's not that sad. Um, it's only happy people. They say happy, happy fields. Um, to me, that wasn't what I was looking for because I guess I'm not looking for comfort. My personal comfort is not my goal in life. Um, and, and I think that I think some of those fields miss out on the true, um, I think spectrum of human experience. And so anyway, I think it's because I'm an oncologist, um, that, um, I, I feel strongly that death is not the worst thing that can happen to somebody. Uh, the loss of humanity is, I feel strongly that sometimes the right thing for someone isn't just more chemotherapy, but helping them understand what they really want with what little life they have. I think the, I think uncertainty, that's the other thing about being oncologist, talk about uncertainty. I'm reminded of it every day that I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, somebody who I thought would live for years is dead in their sleep. Um, somebody who I thought would die very quickly lives much longer than anyone anticipated. Um, so I'm always wrong. And that's why I will never actually, I don't tell people things like that. I give, I give ranges, probabilistic thing. I never give, tell people you're always going to be wrong. Um, and, 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 and then the other things I study medical evidence, so I know how shitty it is. <laughs> um, and, and yet also I read some of these history, like I read like what expert read said in 1960 about something that we know to be worthless. That's like part of my research interest. Um, and I see how confident they were and I see the same confidence in people today. And I think like, you know, at the end of the day, we're just the same uh, creature we've always been like incredibly self-assured that we alone know the right answer. Um, we like to divide the world into good guys, bad guys, smart people, not smart people, experts, not experts. Um, yep. and, and when we are scared and uncertain, we like to puff up our chest the most, um, and, and not much has changed. And so I sometimes reflect that, like, we look back on the plagues, uh, in the middle ages and we think of those people as like, just so barbaric and prehistoric. Um, and a thousand years from now, they'll look back on this plague and, and see us as the yeah. same way. Just prehistoric people who, who tore at each other, who, who didn't want to talk to each other and, and, uh, who didn't invest in what they could have done and, uh, and probably didn't run enough randomized trials and things like that. Uh, so this is, these are just my views. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for this. Can I ask you one other question? Okay. Or do you have the time no, for I that? No, I got, I got, yeah, I got the time to, yeah. Because uh, uh, this is, I, I'm, so I, I mean, I study agency and one of the things that I think is really fascinating by agency is the capacity to act, is the capacity to do things. And one of the things that I think 
that I find to be interesting is the way in which um, the um, medicine gets reduced sometimes. By medicine, I mean the you know giving people care sometimes get gets reduced to the the point of the spear. Yes, the one physician yeah. or the one nurse or so on and so forth. And um, for me, that seems um, politically unfortunate and ethically unfortunate. Because it seems like there's an entire community of people who whose relationships are mediated by all these different social relations, but also by this material, by stuff, by rooms, by coats, by by tools, by medicines, so on, by, by like actual like you know drugs, yeah, and so on and so forth. And and I'm just and but I don't feel in any position to make sense of that. And well, I you know you've invited me on your podcast, which is super nice of you, but I definitely I'd love to hear your view about that. Sort of very uh, inchoate observation. Well, I think you're right that um, that we often reduce in popular narratives like the treatment to the drug name and the doctor who gave it. But the reality is, like having a diagnosis like uh, of a terminal cancer is like brings you into a network of people where you know my nurse is 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 like a super wonderful person who's like fluent in three languages because we practice in a place where a lot of people speak different languages um mm. the person who see greets the patient when they come in the person who makes the follow-up appointment the person who actually connects their port every time and they have the same infusion nurse um the person who um maybe just cleaning up the area uh the custodial staff um the doctor and then uh, the other side of it is like the person every i mean a lot of people majority of people bring someone into this Space, a daughter, a son, a husband, they bring them into the encounter. And I don't know, I think your job is they're, they're both your patients to some degree, whether you want, you know, whether you want to admit mm. it or not. Um, and, and, and you have mm. to bring everyone on the same page and people come along differently. Um, but I think you're right, that it is not that it is it is more than just I gave X, Y, or Z. Um, and I think the people who, I mean, I think when I read about doctoring these days, I read about just all burnout. They're all burned out. You look oh, at, how, wow. I mean, I mean, you just read so many. I mean, there's like, like it's like an epidemic of doctors feeling burnt out. And I think we feel burnt mm. out because of that exact thing you're articulating, is that we view ourselves just as this unidimensional thing that my job is to like prescribe chemotherapy, chemo, next chemo, next chemo, next chemo. And, and we forget, like, that's not your job. Your job is to like help out in this ecosystem in whatever way you can. And the more you see yourself as part of that, then, you know, I think the the less you feel burnt out and the more you have purpose, which is probably the like real the more, antidote. The more we who aren't doctors see that there's this ecosystem to support, that might change some of our relationship to mm. public policy and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, you in are a doctor. That... Everyone with a doctorate <laughs> is a doctor. <laughs> and if you say <laughs> otherwise, you're going to get <laughs> fucked up in this world. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. There's no sure path. No comment, man. No, uh, comment. no comment. Yes. Well, uh, um, but, um, you know, I just wanted to end with a quote from Plato's Republic that I think is um, is the importance of why it can't just be doctors and it can't just be scientists talking about them. It's got to be people like you and it's got to be everybody. Um, uh, and, and you know, this was the Socrates' famous quote that, you know, uh, we are discussing no small matter, but how we ought to live. And, and that is not just, there's no one person who has jurisdiction over that question. That's a question for all of us. So thank you so much, Dr. Smith. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been a, a, a great afternoon. I appreciate it. Be well. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. 
The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.